welcome back to The Gabble and the Gabble. I am joined by Clementine, Pablo's little sister, <laughs> who's not so interested in the whole thing. Pablo, there you go. There's Clementine. That's Pablo's little sister. And I'm also joined by... Uh, third fiddle now. Drop down the rankings. Here he is. Here's Simon. He's back after a week away. Drop down the rankings to third fiddle. Uh, it's Simon from Lime Bay Auctions in Devon. Hello, Clementine. How are you? Oh, look at that sweet little dog. Love puppies. I've always loved puppies, as you know, Harry. Uh, well, yes, obviously, yes. Um, what's making me laugh is I'm talking to uh, the people on the uh, podcast like they can see Clementine, who's uh, now giving me kisses. But how sweet is that? <laughs> this week, after a busy week of auctioneering, we've done three auctions, uh, Simon and I. We are... We're going to get an education, aren't we, Simon? We are going to get an education, my friend, because today I am delighted. He's an exceptionally busy man. His his skills are required all over the place. He speaks on um, BBC TV, uh, sorry, BBC radios. And whenever there's anything vinyl records related, this is your go-to guy. This is Mr. Jamie Fennell, who owns Rooster Records in Exeter. He's going to tell you all about collecting, buying and selling vinyl. Trust me, it is a fascinating subject. Well, I am delighted that the gavel and the gavel is welcoming a true expert in the field of vinyl. I know nothing about this. Simon knows a little bit more, but this gentleman knows everything there is. He owns Rooster Records in Exeter. It is the supremely talented, brilliant brain. It's Jamie Fennell. Welcome, Jamie, to the pod. Oh, that almost deserves a round of applause. I've never quite had an intro like that before. I, I could follow you around all day if you like, Jamie, and just shout that out from wherever you are. Make you feel special. Jamie, thank you so much for coming on the pod today. Um, if I can give a little bit of background, um, obviously, Lime Bay Auctions, based down in the southwest, really only a stone's throw from Exeter. And a few years back, I was delighted to meet Jamie who I believe, if I'm right in saying, Jamie, I think you bought some records from us that we had in one of our sales. Um, and we got to meet you, started to talk about vinyl. And that's when, and this is where I can say, that's when I realized, hang on, here's a guy that seriously knows what he's talking about when it comes to vinyl and music. So, uh, Jamie, give us a, a quick bit of background. I know, uh, so Rooster Records, that's the HQ, right? Rooster Records in Exeter. Rooster Records in Exeter. It didn't start in Exeter. It started in Taunton way back in uh, 95 when I was young. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we, we were there for 12 years. Uh, we then sold that on as a going concern and then moved the entire operation down to Exeter just because we thought it'd be a bit more cultural, a bit more of a, a vibe, university city and all the rest of it. And it, sure. it did prove 17, 18 years on to be a, uh, the best thing we could possibly have done. And vinyl is obviously your passion, right? And, and is this something that you've, uh, you know, that you've loved from a very young age, or is it something you adopted later on in life? How did this all come about? I think I, I mean, as a teen, I think I, I, I was heavily into cassettes, which are making a bit of a comeback. Maybe more of that later. Yeah, we need to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> Who thought we'd have airtime with that? But um, <laughs> yeah, around the age of sort of sixteen, I think, fueled by my brother moving to London, who's also a vinyl nut. His house is worse than mine. 
you know, he would go around all the record and tape exchanges in Notting Hill and I'd go up and stay with him as a sort of 16, 17 year old and just clean up in the bargain bins when everyone was getting rid of vinyl and moving over to CD. The crave to keep buying vinyl sort of started there really and it's, then I then I wasted 10 years training as a lawyer. <laughs> right. Oh, I was going to I was going to ask did you have a real job at some point? <laughs> like uh, like us we I always did. say we you know we got uh, did you ever have a real job before you got involved in auctions? Yeah. <laughs> I did. Yeah, my real job was was working for a law firm in Taunton as a criminal lawyer and, and, and litigation, personal injury, and all that sort of nonsense. I wish you told me this before I met you. I was about to say, that's like a proper grown-up <laughs> job. Oh, God. Now I've gone and done it. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I knew something was wrong when I used to come back at lunchtimes and my colleagues were devouring their Law Society gazettes. And uh, I'd, I'd come back from lunch with a, with a bag of records and, and, and record collector magazine, which I'd sit and devour. <laughs> and my Law Society gazettes were, were still in their shrink wrap piled up to the ceiling <laughs> never ever opened and i just thought i'm in the wrong job here so i i, I need to do something else and uh, as luck would have it my my good lady cheryl uh, i met in the law firm and um she said she could see how miserable i was and she said well what else can we do and uh, i said well the only other thing i know anything about is is buying and selling records because i used to do record fairs at weekends to re- relieve the misery of my day job and she said well I'll, let's open a record shop I'll run it for the first year or so, see how we get on. So I would do that, and at lunch times, I'd, I'd on the way around from court with me pinstripes on, I'd I'd <laughs> I'd rip me crombie off and me pinstripe jacket, take me tie off, surf for an hour, then put it all back on again and go and do an injunction in the afternoon or something. So we did that for about <laughs> a year, and uh, she was brilliant and uh, still is. About fourteen months later, I handed my notice in. I say that was twenty-eight years ago, <laughs> and here I am. <laughs> And let's put this let's let's put this in context. Can you give us an idea? Because you've told me this before and it blew my mind. How big is your record collection, Jamie? Um, you know, I suppose oh. there's the shop and there's the stock, but then there's your personal <laughs> collection. Yeah, we're looking around at the moment and I can see nothing but LPs. What what where do you think we're at, tally wise? Oh uh, but the sh- the shop, it the trouble is after a while it, it becomes it becomes blurred. Because you have so much stuff in the shop. I've got about 30,000, 40,000 in the back of the shop, LPs. And then I've got five lockups <laughs> that are floor, floor to ceiling of vinyl and CDs. In the shop, without going into your sort of hidden man cave storage facility, there's 40,000 of them. There's 40,000 in the back of the shop. And then there's probably about 10,000 10, in the front. So, yes, I need a bigger shop, but I'm not going to get one because <laughs> I'm too old and too tired. So um, it's uh, it, it, it too expensive. Yeah, I'd need staff, and I've had staff in the past. And... Oh, hang on. This is even getting more nuts. Sorry. Is there just still the two of you? It's still just me and my wife, yeah. Yep. Right. Okay. Feel like a real underachiever now. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, we've had staff, and we've done, you know, we've tried branching out into loads of mail order and everything else, but it, it just becomes a headache and you end up just paying their wages and thinking, why am I doing that? I'm not really making anything. I'm just creating jobs for people. So in the end, I just thought, let's just, just keep it the two of us. Conservatively, Jamie, if you take the lockups, your personal collection, which we're looking at behind you, the, what are we talking? I don't know. My collection in the house is about 15,000 albums in the, in the house. 
But l- luckily, we live in an old chapel, so it's quite quite big rooms. It does look very cool, I have to say, all lined with the vinyl. Long hallways, perfect for records. So I don't know is the answer. You don't know, do you? There's, there's thousands, tens of thousands of items. I was beginning to get the impression that you were hedging your bets there, but it's, it runs into an awful lot. I find it fascinating that the two of you are running the whole thing. I find that amazing because you have to know it. You have to know where it all is. Well, yeah, you do, and you know the the the, the back room has kind of got a life of its own, and it's just it just mutates like like quite a mass, and it just <laughs> you go out there and you find things you've never seen before, and you think, well, I I must have bought them because I'm the only one that buys these things in. So I I find rarities in there, and I find all sorts of stuff out the back, and. I think, well, I've been through this rack so many times. How, where's that been? I'm sure, I'm sure Rumpelstiltskin comes in at nights and just feeds a few new titles into the racks. Now, D- Jamie, tell us about, in, in your industry, in your business, because we all talk about, certainly in auction houses, how vinyls come back. But to be fair, you never went away, did you? You've been doing this since 1995. So this whole suggestion that vinyl's back, that's not really entirely accurate, is it? No, not really. Um, I mean, I started selling records in about 84. Uh, that was at Record Fairs. My first one was at Exeter. I used to do them with a friend and, you know, we'd, we'd go off for weekends and there'd be two fairs somewhere or I'd go to London and do fairs. You know, I, I've even done fairs in, in, in Canada and, and abroad. But in those days, it was pretty much collectors. And you've got to remember that the early 80s wasn't very far from the late 60s. So most of that stuff was still around. It's like only... 10, 12 years old, you know, from Abbey Road or something. So there was still, you know, plenty about. But people were, through the 80s, they, they did start to shift towards CDs. In fact, in 88, I think, cassette was the biggest selling format in the world, which is quite sort of staggering, really, when you think about it. There was a time when wow. cassette was king. And then CD came along. And then in the 90s and early 2000s, vinyl was a struggle. People used to say to us in, in Taunton, when we were there and they used to see the racks of vinyl and they'd say, what have you got all this old stuff for? Get rid of it and get more CDs in because CDs were hard to find in the early days. You know, they, you know, I used to have to go to London and talk to dealers and suppliers up there. And I started importing from the States and, and all sorts of things to get decent CDs in because you couldn't find them. But people scoffed at us for stocking vinyl. And I said, well, yeah, you mark my words. They'll, you know, it'll be back. <laughs> and uh, it did. It really, really, during the 90s and early 2000s, it, it, certainly the mid, by the mid-2000s, it was starting to really come back into the, into the public consciousness. And now, you know, it's, people are very fickle. People are very malleable. They, they will follow whatever's fashionable. You know, every day I get people coming in and saying, I've decided to go back to vinyl. Well, no, you haven't decided. It's just acceptable to do it now. So you're kind of following, <laughs> following it because it's okay. And I, I got into it all this to be out of fashion. And now, unfortunately, I'm in fashion, which I don't like. I like being out of fashion. <laughs> you're but... finding that awkward. <laughs> I'm finding oh, it quite yeah. awkward being so popular. I hate it. <laughs> so I was much better when it was just me and a handful of anoraks just chewing, <laughs> chewing the fat over an old pressing of something. And now I have to put up with people coming in saying, you know, oh, have you got rumours by Fleetwood Mac? And it's just, oh, God. <laughs> oh, is there is there, a, is there a standard shopping bag for our new back to vinyl customer? Do they come in with a? Is, is there a standard list? You know, um, uh, Pink Floyd's Hole in the Wall, and it, 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 is, does that happen? 
<laughs> What's hole in the wall? <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> Dark side of the hole in the wall. Yeah, that's how much I know. Thanks, Jamie. Yeah, yeah there is. Uh, you, you see, you see him coming. You see him coming. You, 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 you've got the the, the middle-aged middle-aged guy that sort of comes in. You know, pulls his trousers up over his over his belt and says, "Where's your Floyd, mate?" You know, you got, uh, and you think, "Oh, you, I need to have an arrow just pointing them down down towards the Pink Floyd section." So you get that a lot, <laughs> but you get the same sort of twenty albums or artists asked for almost daily, uh, and you you can almost tell who's gonna. They'll have lists on their phone. I've got a list, and they'll show you the list, and it's exactly the same list every time. So <laughs> there's no imagination. <laughs> but thankfully, there are people that that, that do uh, want something a little bit more out of the ordinary. I want to know what the list is, and I want to know how sad I am as a middle-aged man, because I've got a list on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> so, we, yeah, Fleetwood Mac rumours, I would get asked 10 times a day, and I'd put them out for fun, and you know they, they hoover them up. Dark Side of the Moon, obviously. Uh, Paul Simon, Graceland. Oh, really? Blondie, oh, Parallel Lines. Oh, God. Clash, London Calling. Uh, ELO, Out the Blue, which was one probably only from a few years ago. Oh, okay, I'm safe. <laughs> oh, God, what else? Uh, the, things like The Smiths, you know, they're so popular, all these bands, The Cure. They were all having a massive resurgence because old gits like me are buying them back. Not me, because I never got rid of them, but people like me are buying them back from that generation. And... Youngsters, students, girls—you know—they're they're buying vinyl from twelve upwards. They're, they're fueling it, really. The the, the 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 demand for the retro thing from the sixties, seventies, and and eighties—it's the kids that are buying it. Fascinating. Well, interestingly, down in down in Lyme Regis, Jamie, the other the other week, I saw a young girl wearing a Stone Roses T-shirt, and I was like, "How yep. the hell has that happened?" She, you know, she. I mean, obviously she likes them, but, you know, that I was listening to that 30 years ago, you know, and she she must only have been 13, 14, something like that. So, yeah, they're getting into that older yep. music, aren't they? It's interesting. They are, big time. I mean, I get asked, I mean, Blur have got a new album out and teenagers come in asking for it. And, you know, Oasis never stops selling. And like you say, Stone Rose is super popular. But it's that generation, it's the new generation that are buying them, which is which is amazing. I mean, and some of this stuff, they you know, they're like they're buying the Cure and the Smiths. These things are forty years old, older. Mm. And yeah, yeah. It, it, the amazing thing is that you know I grew up with that music, and I was at college in the early eighties. So it's like when I was at college, me buying Bing Crosby and yes, yes, Vera Lynn exactly from forty years before. Where are they? Where are they hearing the Stone Roses and Oasis? And I mean, it's because it's not it's not on on popular radio, as, or is it? I think they're it's it's a combination of things. I think modern music is leaving them a bit cold, and they're they're searching for things from the past. Right. Often they're inheriting their parents' musical tastes and their parents' record collections, CD collections. Yeah. And uh, and and of course they've also got the internet. And they've got their Spotify's, and and they can just listen to a lot of this old stuff. And I guess it's just they just share, they just share the information between each other, which you know we never had a chance to do. I mean, the only way I could share something was with a, is if a school friend dubbed something onto an old Memorex C90 or something, and <laughs> you'd take it home and play it. I mean, that oh, that was as good as it got. That takes me back. That takes me back. I love a Memorex. 
Oh, I love that. You're right about the um, the kids thing. My daughter blames her musical tastes on what I used to listen to in the car when she was little. So I used to listen to a lot of Ice T and NWA and stuff like that. And my daughter is absolute. That's her major driving force, and she's really into it. Um, and it's quite fascinating that she's. Um, I mean, I'm making I'm making no excuses for my whatever stage of life I was going through at that point. But, you know, that, and she says, you know, that's the sort of stuff I picked up as a kid. It's interesting. I find it fascinating. But it's all on YouTube. It's all on TikTok. They get the snippets. Yeah. Yeah. And they run with it. And and it sounds so good to them yeah. compared to, you know, kind of what's around now. You know, that we, we, had, we had scenes in those days. We had genres. We had, you know, we had fads. We had fashions. You know, it... In the 70s, within a few years, you know, it just leapt from singer-songwriters to glam rock, you know, brass rock, and then suddenly middle of the road, and then it was punk, and then it was disco, and then it was new romantics. That all happened in 10 years. 10 years ago from here, it was kind of just the same as it is now, just there. <laughs> Cassettes? Really? Cassettes? I know it's it's a weird one because we used to stock cassettes when we were back in Taunton in the 90s and you wouldn't sell a lot but you'd sell some um and then when we moved to Exeter we just we just literally shelved the whole lot of them thousands of them just put them in lockups and we didn't want to build units for them I mean, it was 2006 and they were pretty much dead and we thought well you know just rather than just bury them on a on a charity shop we'll just we'll just put them in the lockups um, for a rainy day, never, never for a minute thinking they'd get a, you know a, a second life. But really, maybe since COVID, I don't know why people have started asking for cassettes and things like uh, Stranger Things has helped because that's such a retro show and so popular, and it, it's got so many references to the early '80s. And of course, like I'm saying earlier, cassette was dominant then. Mm. So. You know, kids are now thinking, great, wouldn't it be cool to have a, you know, a cassette Walkman to walk around with? Oh my God. So I now get people coming in saying, have you got any cassettes? So I, I've, I haven't got the new units made or anything because I just don't want to go down that road. But I have been digging out boxes of cassettes for them to rummage through. And to my absolute amazement, I mean, they bring some up to the counter and I'm like, oh yeah, you know, a couple of quid each. I start looking at some of these things up. I mean, I looked up a, a My Bloody Valentine one the other day. Yeah. I can believe it. It sells for about £150, the cassette. Really? I nearly sold it to them for three quid. And I thought, <laughs> well, I better just check it. Because it's a bit of a popular one. Yeah. On vinyl, it sells for a lot of money. It's CD, you can't, you know, it's fibre. I thought, well, the cassette won't be much. Unbelievable. Do, I did that... the same with the KLF one. That was about 80 oh, quid. Oh, KLF, KLF. Do you think it's because, I mean, let's be honest, we've all tried to rewind a cassette with a biro. They're pretty fragile beasts, aren't they? Do you think that's part of the, the you know, they're rarer? and Because, or, or, I mean, the quality wasn't great. It wasn't was it? great. But if you had a decent player, I mean, you, 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 I mean, my brother swears by cassette players. <laughs> he kind of grew up on, on tape. Um, but he swears by them. You can get these like Nakamichi cassette players that, you know, they, they sell for a fortune now and, and they, they do reproduce a really, really top sound. You know, you think about it. I mean, all the all the stuff that was recorded at the BBC from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, it was all on tape. So, mm. you know, tape is a really, really good format. It's just the cassettes over time. You know, they, you know, what it used to be like, you used to have to put your tissue on the cassette head to get all the ferric yeah. off and... <laughs> and then they get chewed up and spat out, twisted, and yeah. 
Absolutely. We're going to have to think twice at these house clearances when there's a big tape collection. Do you know what? You're weird. That shows that we've been working together for a long time because I've just written down. I've got a big clearance tomorrow <laughs> and I've written down message boys in morning to make sure there are cassettes. Bring them back. <laughs> Bring them back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, Don't leave them there. Don't leave them there. We'll have them all. I don't know. I don't know what I'm looking for, but I now know a man who does. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, Jay, Jamie. Now, as I've got to know you over the years and your sublime knowledge of all that is vinyl, um, I have realised uh, that it is a black art, and you are like the prince wizard of the whole thing. I get that. But explain to to, to people like me and and possibly Harry and to some of our listeners because. I just found it amazing when you were explaining to me what makes a vinyl and a record worth big money because it's not the obvious, is it? It's not just because it's a particular, you know, a, a good record. It can be down to a whole host of things that makes it rare and have value. And you were explaining this to me, and it absolutely blew my mind. So, could, could you give us some of the some of the background on that? Yeah. Ooh, how long you got? Um, exactly. <laughs> records are a weird one. Uh, firstly, there are so many different pressings. So someone can collect a pressing purely, you know, what label it's on. Uh, and they now even ten years ago this never happened, but now people actually ask what the mother stampers are, and you what? might say, "What the hell are mother stampers?" Now, if you look in a re on a record and you've got the grooves, so you can see the tracks, and then towards the label in the middle, there's a little dead space, like dead wax, where there's nothing on. But if you look closely, there's there's detail. There's there's the, the catalogue number and stuff that's etched into the to the dead wax. So, and on top of that, so that often tells you which pressing it is if if you're in the know. Uh, and on top of that, you can have little, little other little numbers etched into that part of the vinyl, which tells you, you know, which one it was, where it was pressed, and oh, it's crazy. So, you know, people now look out for all this fine detail about what pressings they are. Um, and then you've got reissues from all over the years. Um, I mean, to, to to give you an example, I about seven or eight years ago, I was rummaging around in my back room. And I was looking for some, uh, I came across a little row of King Crimson records. Now, you know, super popular these days, quite rightly so. And uh, and I found a copy of their first album in the court of the Crimson King, which is the one with the big scary face on, if you're not familiar with it, mm -hmm. from 1968. And, uh, it, you know, it's a, it's a psychedelic -y prog rock masterpiece that, that all, all the kids want to hear now. And the cover will, you know, scare small children. Now, I pulled this copy out and I thought, oh, you know, I looked at it and it was a bit marked. I thought, mm, it's only VG, very good condition, but I, I can still put it out. And at the time I was doing a bit of eBay here and there. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll stick it on eBay because it's a bit marked. Don't want to put it in the shop. and I'll grade it. Now I looked at the, 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 the dead wax and saw A1B1, which you know, in that, on that record would determine that it's the first pressing. Now I listed it on, e on eBay and I listed it as A1B1, thinking nothing more of it. Within about half an hour, I had about 20 emails from all over the world saying, would you sell me this record now? I offer you a thousand pound. I offer this. I mean, it's, it's, it was probably a hundred and 150 pound record in my eyes. Sell me this record now, take it off eBay, sell me record. And I'm like, well, hang on a minute. What's so special? It's just a pink island copy of In the Court of the Crimson King by King Crimson. What's the, what's the big deal? And I was getting emails from Japan, from Russia and all sorts. By the morning, the, the, the bids had gone up to like 400 pound. I'm thinking, what's crazy? This is crazy. And then I was getting messages from people saying, 
A1B1 doesn't exist. It's de demo only. This doesn't exist. I must have for my collection. So I refused to take it off. I thought, well, I'll, I'll let it run. And it sold for £1,600, which was 10 times more than I thought it would sell for. <laughs> but it just goes to show you that people look for fine details in records. And they love original pressings. They love things to have posters with them if they're meant to, you know, inserts, all sorts of little things. And yeah, I, it's, it's, it's a really, it, it's a, it takes a lifetime to learn. That's the problem. And you're always learning about what makes a record collectible. But essentially, the earlier the pressing, the better. But then there are a lot of modern pressings that are limited and sell for a lot of money. So can I ask an ignorant question? Do people, um, obviously people specialise, they probably specialise on first pressings, but do they focus on, sometimes do they focus on one album and they'll want every pressing of that album and every, you know, every release and every, do they, do, do they is that how some people collect? I'm not all people, but is that one of the... Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, I like to collect a wide variety of artists, you know, and my, my tastes are enormously wide. But I've got customers and I've had customers over the years that really are obsessed with one band. Right. And they will, they will collect everything and anything of just one band. And I've got a lot of them. But the one guy in particular that I, I hark back to from my Taunton days was a Led Zeppelin obsessive. And, you know, to, to the point where every time he came in, he would say, you know, oh, what, what Led Zeppelin you had in? And I'd show him and he'd buy them. And I'd say you've already got this. You've bought it off me a hundred times. <laughs> and he, on one occasion, he turned on the spine and he pointed to a little maple leaf on the spine. And he said, this is a Canadian pressing, which I knew. He says, Canadian pressing, but my, can I said, yeah, I've sold you a Canadian pressing before. And he said, oh yeah, but this one's got a tiny little maple leaf in the corner on the spine. And that was his reason for buying wow. it. Wow. Oh, okay. So it, obsessive to the nth degree. And I've got a lot of those. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> well, interesting. That's because Jamie, you've also pointed out in records that we've had, and you've been very kind and very supportive of us at Lime Bay Auctions. And you know, when you pop by, uh, I often uh, bribe you with a mug of tea to have a look through some records. And you've you've dragged out some amazing. Uh, you know, where the logo is a third of the way up the album sleeve instead of in the corner and you've decided, I mean, it, the, the granularity that you have to go to in terms of, because it's not just the album, is it? It's the cover, it's the sleeves, it's the, it's everything, isn't it? it it's, it's the whole package, yeah. I mean, often it's, it's, the, it's the label um, that people are obsessed with, you know, sometimes is the, like on a on some sixties Decca albums, there's what's known as a KT tax code, which is just just the K and the T are either side of the spindle hole, and people will will want the one with the KT tax code and things like that. But sometimes it's text that goes around the rim of the label. Um, you know, there are mispressings of things. So it's sometimes it's the record, sometimes it's the sleeve. Uh, I, I remember a friend of mine trying to sell a copy of an album by a 60s psychedelic band called Open Mind, uh, which is about a thousand pound record. Now he took it to it took it to Utrecht when we were going to the Utrecht record fairs every every six months or so in Holland, and he, we had a meeting with this this Russian dealer who he'd, he'd been selling stuff to for years. This is before the war, and um, he tried selling him this op this this um, Open Mind LP. And, the, and it was a pristine condition. I mean, I was marveling at it. I was, I was salivating. And uh, 
And the Russian dealer threw it back at him. He said, well, what's wrong with it? He said, it is not true first pressing. <laughs> My friend said, of course it is. How many pressings are there? It's 1968. And he said, no. And he, 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 he opened the sleeve and he said, first pressings have tiny dog stamp inside the sleeve, like a little, you know, like a, a, a stamp you'd get at school or something. Tiny dog, black dog stamp. That's the first pressing. Without that, I'm not interested. Unbelievable. So he refused to buy it. I'm doing most of this interview with my mouth open. It's quite worrying because this is all a massive revelation <laughs> to me. It's amazing. It really is. Now, Jamie, we've done some we've done some timed online sales at Lime Bay Auctions of just vinyl. Help me out with something, and I am springing this on you. So if you, I can't believe you don't know the, it might not, but I have not prepped you for this. So apologies. A huge amount of our vinyl went to the States, to America. Is that normal? Yeah, the Americans are... are... I mean, like 80% of the sale. Yeah. 80% of the vinyl in the sale went to the States. Why is that? Americans have a, a huge, huge interest in... They have a huge interest in British artists and British pressings. American pressings. I mean, I used to live in Canada for a while. And I don't know if you know, but American pressings, are 90% of them are pressed on just sort of hard card sleeves which look great when they're new or when they're only a few years old but in the 60s and 70s they look fab but as years go by they get covered in ring wear that circular mark where they've been in in a in a rack somewhere in right. a shop the seams start to split because they they get thumbed through and they start to look less attractive British pressings not only sound really good and were pressed you know in on in great sort of recording studios in the 60s and 70s but they're often laminated and they they wear so much better so a lot of and again i mean you can you can go to australian new zealand pressings south african pressings they're very flimsy the sleeves are quite flimsy so they wear really really easily so across the world people really love british pressings i'm i'm guessing that a lot of americans are buying them because they're more desirable Right than 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 their own wow. pressings. Interesting. Yeah, that's that's amazing. No, I'm brilliant. Right, I sprung that on you. Apologies for that, Jamie. But what a perfect answer. <laughs> We've learned something. Uh, did you know that, Harry? No, uh, we didn't. But I'm always nice. It's always nice to hear that the, we're better than everybody else. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Flying the flag for Britain. Brilliant. The Japanese buy a lot, and the Russians. Do they? Yeah, really big in. I used to have a Japanese dealer that used to come in all the time um, buying. Just piles and piles of British pressings. I don't see so many of them anymore. I think the exchange rate is not so good and the shipping rates are more expensive. But uh, yeah, I, I used to get a lot of Japanese dealers in. Now, when we've interviewed people on the pod before, often it's auction related and the like. But we do always like and our listeners like to hear your best find your number one find, you know, often it's a, for us, it's a Chinese vase that made X online. Tell us in the world of vinyl, Jamie, what's your number one find to date? Find in terms of a bargain or find in terms of, God, I'm glad, I'm glad they told me about that. No, whatever floats your boat. And we can tell you one thing. So Paul Laidlaw is an auctioneer. He found Oliver Cromwell's watch, but it was in a Rolex box. So, but he then had to do all the research and get it back and work out what it was. So it doesn't necessarily have to be the most valuable thing you sold. It's the thing that's really got your heart racing or just put that 
smile on your face for a month where you go, do you know what? I just named that. <laughs> there are probably too many to mention, but I got a wonderful phone call from hospice care some years ago. Lovely chap called Glyn that used to work there in Exeter, but he's, he's moved on now. Uh, and he often rang me if they had something special in, something, you know, other than uh, James Last. He rang me one morning, <laughs> seven or eight years ago, and said, oh, you better get down here. I know you like your jazz. So I went down. He had a, a copy of Don Rendell Shades of Blue, an original copy in utterly perfect condition. It's British jazz, which I really like, from the late 60s, early 70s. But this particular one's about 65, 66 and I looked at it and my jaw at the floor. I'm like, wow, this is this is like the, the peak of, you know, one of the rare jazz albums, seriously rare jazz albums, which at the time, seven or eight years ago, was probably selling for maybe 1,000, 1,500, something like that. But to find one in perfect condition was just unreal. And I just, I couldn't, uh, you know, I said, look, what do you want for it? You know, we have to have a fair price for this, for hospice care. We agreed on, I think, £800 at the time. There were a couple of other things from the rack that I bought as well. And I think we agreed on about £800, which he was dead chuffed with. I said, look, who who donated this? He said, believe it or not, the guy that donated it knew its value, but wanted it, you know, to go to charity. He knew its value. and he, And he said there will be other stuff coming from his collection so we agreed on that one uh and then over the next few months every now and then this guy would donate some more and there were some other real gems so i couldn't wait to get his phone call and say you know that guy's been in again you want to you better get down here but that record now is a sword in value so it turned out to be a really really good investment so yeah but all the time it's it's what keeps you doing it you know, I go to house visits and I've probably done a thousand house visits over the years. And what what the best thing about it is you're thumbing through and every now and then you just go, oh, and you, you just you just think, oh, my goodness, I didn't expect to see that in the next pile. And yeah, it's, it's great. It's a great little buzz. And it's the, the worst collections are the ones where you get a list on a spreadsheet with prices next to them <laughs> and eBay prices, Discogs prices dare I say Amazon prices and 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 you'd know what you're going to get and you know that they you know they, they they want top money for it and you think oh this is a bit boring but the great ones are when you go and you're not expecting it you know I've done house clearances I did one two weeks ago and and uh I've done I did one in Paynton many years ago I took me four vans and a whole lockup to just house house it all but you know and, and you don't even see it all when you're clearing it all out you don't have time so over the over the four sort of over the months ahead, when you go back to it and sort through it, you come across things you think, "Goodness, I didn't even know that was there." So yeah, it never ends. It's great. It's the it's the it's the carrot that keeps you doing it. I, f- I find it fascinating. It is the, it's the volume of the number of records you've got to go through. I'd never looked at it like that. It must you must buy them and then it must take month. You might come back to it a year later. I come back to records ten years later sometimes. Well, to give you an example. I was in my back room a few years ago and I pulled out a, a Knitting Sawney album, <laughs> which I don't even remember buying in. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. That's pretty quite collectible. And it is. And I went to take the records out and an envelope popped out. And I thought, oh, what's this? It's a strange, strange thing to have a sort of insert in an envelope. And I opened the envelope and there were 16 10 pound notes and a five pound note tucked inside. 165 pound. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, 
what on earth is this doing in here? And this was in my back room all those years. And I had no idea who I bought it from. I just thought, wow, you know, that, that's the beauty of it. You just don't know. So, yeah, and I, I've had some... I've had some very interesting things fall out of records over the years. Some some you can't broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I bet. Is there is there Jamie a is there a holy grail in the world of vinyl in the world of collecting? I mean, I appreciate that is a ridiculously broad question, but is there you know the Ming vase of the vinyl world? Do you, do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Simon, that's a ridiculously broad question. <laughs> exactly. I, I, not really. I mean, rock and roll's been around for 60 years, 70 years. There are so many collectibles out there. I mean, you can start with individual artists like the Beatles, the top 10 numbered white albums, you know, from 68, you know, the, the value they, that they must be worth. Uh, but there's, there's just so many. There's so many rare records out there. There's so many things that, you know, there's acetates out there you know, which sell for crazy, crazy prices if it's the right sort of thing. Test pressings, um, it's just, it, it's never-ending. There are, it depends what genre you're into. It's like the Vertigo Swirl label records that came out in the early 70s. There's about 90-something of those. And they're mainly progressive rock, although Rod Stewart did creep onto two of them. But they're very, very sought after. And the most, I, I'm missing one. I'm missing Dr. Z. Uh, and that sells for three, four thousand pounds. So it's the only one of the Vertigo records I don't own, and I refuse to pay the dealer prices for it. I'm, I'd rather wait to get one in a collection, but it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> Fantastic. And of course, the the number one collectible on the scene for you is obviously anything by Adele, right? <laughs> now I did agree. We didn't want to. Did, we wouldn't mention her, Jamie. I'm on your. I'm on your side, mate. It <laughs> says on my notes here: do not bring up Adele, Harry. It says it in bold. And I wrote that, Jamie, <laughs> to protect you. And then I couldn't help myself. I just couldn't help myself. Um, yeah, we'll leave poor Adele alone, shall we, Jamie? I do have a problem with a lot of modern <laughs> artists and a, mo- a lot of modern styles, but Adele is right up there on the list of my problems. <laughs> but I think what you've described today is really quite heartwarming in the way that the youngsters these days are turning their back slightly on that kind of mass-produced, um, churned-out uh, modern music and returning to the far more gritty, well, we would obviously say far more gritty and interesting yeah. older works. That is is absolutely fascinating. And, of course, through the power of Spotify and the internet and their great mind powers to be able to navigate these systems, they're able to find and share this stuff. I think that's really heartwarming. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, abs- absolutely. And, and that's, that's what keeps it going. That's, that's what keeps it, you know, is, you have to remember that each 10 years goes by. There's another 10 years worth of people buying it. There's another 10 years worth of music because there is some good music being made. You know, my, my, my youngest is seriously into Blur. And uh, I have to say, I, I really, really love the new Blur album. It's brilliant. So there's still good records being made, not necessarily by Adele, but it's a matter of taste. But you know, it, it, it's it's great. There's always there's always a scene. There's all there are always people buying it. Certainly, there's plenty of life left in physical music. That's for sure. And I, you know, I, I hope we never get to a situation where. Where you know the, your only way of listening to music is to is to ask a machine to play it, like my hairdressers the other day, when he, <laughs> he just started asking Alexa to play 
this, that, or the other. And I'm like, oh dear, do you have to? You know, haven't you got? Have you got an old CD player you can put on? <laughs> so yeah, I hope we never get. I hope we never get to that stage. But how on earth, Jamie? I'm looking behind you, and there are thousands and thousands of records. How are you going to choose one to listen to this evening? Simon, don't worry, he's going to ask Alexa. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. Um, that's the tip of the iceberg, by the way. <laughs> you haven't seen downstairs. <laughs> that's difficult, actually. I mean, I, I was in Totnes today because my youngest was going to the jamming station down there for the first time uh, with his guitar, and that went well. And then I said, well, let's, let's, let's pop up Totnes High Street. I haven't been up here for a year or so. Of course, I end up in, in in a record shop up halfway up, and bought a few records. So, and because I do that, and I'm always buying records, and I'm always you know taking things out of collections and things that I buy in, I have a float pile, which kind of has a life of its own, and it just spreads until you decide whether it's something you want or you're going to sell, or it might be a duplicate. So I spend most of my time just sorting out things from the float pile. And I, I liken it to someone with a massive garden. You know, my, my mum used to have a big garden. And she used to say to me, oh, you know, it's so much work. I'm in the garden all the time doing all this gardening. I'm doing all this stuff all the time. Oh, you don't know. It, don't, it just takes forever. It's exhausting. It's a bit like that when you've got a really big record collection because you have to, you have to manage it. You have to sort it all out. And, you know, even just filing things away and moving, moving it all up, it takes forever. <laughs> it sounds like a good problem to have and it is but it it can be you know it can be a bit of a millstone I just when I, I it would just be so overwhelming because you just don't know what you haven't got enough hours in your life to listen to all of the albums you own have you you'd have to have them on permanently it's funny because I, I think that I think how have I I, I you know I'm 60 next year how am, how am I going to ever get to listen to all these records but then I look at them and I go through the spines and I think well, I know all these records, so I must have played them at some point. <laughs> There's the odd one where I think I probably filed it away without ever putting the needle down. And I think, well, I'll, I'll, that'll be a rainy day one. But no, most of them I know really, really well. So heaven knows when I've played them, but I must have done at some point over the years. It's so interesting. Jamie, absolutely fascinating to talk to you. We always know when it's a good podcast, and I've said it before, we'll say it again, because the time rushes by. Um, I really do appreciate you taking the time to come on with us. Uh, we've Harry and I have listened to both of this with, with our mouths wide open because we've learned so much in half an hour, and it is such a fascinating topic. Um, hate to tell you, I'm still going to stick with Spotify. Sorry about that, Jamie. I know you'll never speak to me again. <laughs> <laughs> Pleb. <laughs> I tell you what, there's going to be some youngsters listening to this who are out. Well, they'll be heading to Rooster Records, frankly. I think that'll be the way. Rooster Records is the place to be. And I have to say, I have been down to Rooster Records. 4th Street Exeter. 4th Street Exeter. It is an absolute mecca for anybody who is has any interest in vinyl whatsoever. And the champion there is Jamie, and he will help you find, look for, source, whatever whatever it is you need. He's probably already got it, to be honest with you. I wouldn't be surprised. So, Jamie, thank you so much for coming on the pod. It's been absolutely fascinating. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you so much. You're most welcome. Anytime. Thank you, Jamie. If you want to do some more, we'll do some more. Excellent. You take care. Thank you. Cheers. No worries. Take care, folks. 
How fantastic was that, mate? How fantastic was that? I feel like I've had a proper education. Well, I, I've got to tell you my mind. Now, I I do know Jamie and we, we've met quite a few times and he has helped us out at Lime Bay. But my word, that is a black art. That is a minefield of... It's just... I, the detail required to run a record shop. Way beyond me, my friend. The volume. That's what I couldn't get my head no. around. That made me feel nervous, queasy, full mm. of anxiety. <laughs> I mean, if you've got 10,000 albums in the shop, 40,000 in the back room, and then you've got, well, it sounded like several hundred thousand stashed yeah. every, this way yeah. and everywhere. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I tell you what is interesting, though, Harry, is is uh, Jamie has come to our auction house and I've put out 10 boxes and he will literally, you know, he, he used the expression thumb through. He goes through them like lightning and then literally fires out three or four out of four boxes and goes, those. And he is on the money every time. Honestly, I tell you what that guy doesn't know about this particular subject. I don't think it's probably worth knowing at all. But, he, you know, he really does know his stuff. And, uh, dear listener, if you are ever in the Southwest and you want to go to a real, real record store or have a look online, because if you go to Rooster Records in Exeter, you can see pictures of his shop. It's a proper old school record shop where you can thumb through tens of thousands of records of all different genres it's amazing. It's just, I mean, it, it is a mecca in Exeter and the Southwest if you love your vinyl. So Rooster Records, go check it out. Check out the website at the very least. Right. Rooster Records is one thing you need to check out online. However, please like, subscribe, follow us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter and all those sort of things. Send us a postcard. Simon and I are the laughing auctioneer on TikTok. Are we? We're everywhere. What? Yeah, we're everywhere. Everywhere. Thousands of views you've got on the TikTok. I don't want to be everywhere. <laughs> Simon, I'm going to see you in a week. Or am I? In a week? You're going on your holidays? It looks like I might be going on a little holiday, yeah. Yeah. Thought we'd bring that up, considering Simon said he's never going on holiday ever again and oh. used a puppy as an excuse. Simon's going on holiday, everybody. It's not worked. Pablo the puppy has not saved me from a holiday. He saved me from going abroad, so I'll give him that much. Um, but apparently we still need to leave the parish, otherwise people won't relax. <laughs> on that happy note, listener, take care. Take care, Harry. See you soon.